This podcast is sponsored by Intrepid Travel, the global leaders in providing experience-rich, small group trips. Intrepid was founded on the idea that travel, if done right, can be a force for positive change in the world. We believe that adventure and an opened mind can break down barriers, challenge stereotypes and bring us all a little closer together. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. I'm Nathan Scalaro from Dumbo Feather, and this month we're listening to a conversation recorded at the Byron Bay Beach Hotel between environmentalist Paul Hawken and filmmaker Damon Gamow. Paul's renowned book, Project Drawdown, is the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. It outlines the 100 most substantive solutions to address climate change. And as you'll hear, he and Damon have been working closely together for Damon's upcoming film 2040, a documentary set in the future which looks back at 2019, the year we hypothetically began implementing all we could to improve the planet. You'll hear the guys talk about what drawdown actually means, why we know more about Mars than we do about a cubic centimetre of soil, and how we can take real action in our own homes to help reduce global warming. Morning, everyone, and uh, again, thanks for coming along. You've, you've chosen well on your Friday morning. You're in for a special treat. I have had the luxury of uh, spending some time with Paul uh, in the making of the film, and um, history will remember him very kindly. Um, I'd also like to say I haven't been at a pub this packed since t- in 10.30 in the morning, since the late 90s. And um, let's just hope that the conversation is a lot more lucid today than it was then. Um, <laughs> There's been a lot of awareness and understanding, especially in this country, around the importance of us lowering our emissions and how we've got to sort of start to emit less. But I think what is probably missing in the conversation is the understanding of what drawdown actually means. So do you want to start by explaining why that is such a pivotal part of this conversation? Drawdown means many things in different contexts, but in the context of climate, it means that first time on a year-to-year basis where greenhouse gases peak and go down. There's this idea that we're going to you know, hit 2C, stabilize at 450 ppm if we're lucky at the Paris Agreement. And, and this is the only come to Jesus moment in the talk, so I just want to warn you. But um, if you actually put in the other greenhouse gases, we're at 490 ppm right now. We passed 450 a long time ago, and I have no idea why the climate establishment keeps talking about 450 ppm. And humanity, homos, has been here two million years. We've never lived on this planet over 300 ppm for two million years until 1939. That was the first time. So we're in Terra Nova, and the idea that somehow, even though the science is extraordinary in terms of impacts, the idea that we know what's going to happen in the next you know, 80 years, 30 years, 20 years, is really completely speculative. And the, the last time is 295 ppm, was the Eemian period 125,000 years ago. And we know what it was like. There was one to two C higher uh, in temperature. There was lions and giraffes romping across Denmark and Germany. There was crocodiles going up the British Columbia coast and breeding in Alaska. There was hippopotami in the Thames River Delta. Kent and Sussex were, didn't exist as land. Um, and the oceans were uh, 20 to 30 feet higher. And that was 1 to 2 C higher. We're 1 C higher now than pre-industrial level. So to me, that's, like I said, that's the come to Jesus part. Um, but I, I feel like r- right now, the way we have communicated this to each other from science is sort of, it's a little limp. Yeah, because I think even you, you say two degrees warmer and most people that live in a climate of 26 degrees go, 28 wouldn't be too bad. I, I could enjoy that. Yeah. I think, though, can you explain how, I think there's a notion that, if, that even if we stopped emissions tomorrow, even if they just went to zero, that we would still have a lot of work to do in terms of pulling that carbon out of the atmosphere. Can you, can you maybe explain how that sort of might have been missing in the discussion? Well, yes, that's what drawdown is about. In other words, it's not about, there's only two things you can do about the atmosphere. Stop putting greenhouse gases up there, number one. Number two is bring them back home. And oftentimes, or at least in the 
climate world, you'll hear the term decarbonization. And I'm going, again, again, I'm an English major, and so language really intrigues me and bothers me both, you know. It's like, what are you meaning? Decarbonization is the name of the problem. We took the carbon here and put it up there by combustion of fossil fuels and agriculture and deforestation. That's not the name of the solution. <laughs> the solution is recarbonization, which is bring it back home. So stop putting it up there, but at the same time, through a myriad of land use practices and ocean practices as well, we can bring that carbon back home. I mean, the, actually, the, the land and the oceans want to do that. They do it every year. Somebody said to me, like, well, Drawdown is such an ambitious goal. And I said, no, just because your goal is so weak, it doesn't mean Drawdown is ambitious. But we draw down 6 to 7 ppm every year. Every year, if you see the Mauna Loa you know, CO2 levels, they're going like this, but it goes like this, ratcheted, sawtooth. The sawtooth is that it goes down 6, 7 ppm every year and then goes back up past that. So we're talking about is the change in the anthropogenic emissions so that it, is, it equilibrates and then actually goes the other way so that what the oceans and what the land and what the forest and uh, now agriculture, when it's done properly, can draw down is greater than that which is being uh, emitted. Yeah. And can you quickly just tell us the, how the actual organisation came about, the fact that you started with no money at all, which was probably a good thing in hindsight, and how, who's been involved, how you've collaborated the scientists and whatnot? What happened uh, for me is, I mean, i thought about it since 2001, I just wanted to know where do we stand? I mean, all of us, do you know where we stand really? I feel like we're in a plane going through thick fog with no instruments. You know, and everybody's talking like, how's it going? I, said, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? I don't know. I can't see a damn thing. And how high are we? Not sure. We don't have any instruments, you know. How much gas we have? Don't know about that either, you know. Well, but it's still going. I mean, that's kind of where we are. Even though the science is extraordinary, we don't really know. So from 2001, for quite a while, I was saying, can we just find out where we stand and can we map, measure, and model the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming? And institutions said, great idea, we don't do that. And they said, why don't you do it? And I said, I don't know how to do it. And, um, and I dropped it, actually, finally. And then until 2013. And at that time, Bill McKibben wrote that piece in Rolling Stone called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math. And what he did was he took Mark Campanali's work at Carbon Tracker in London and Mark analyzed the balance sheets of every coal, gas, and oil company uh, in the world whose balance sheets you could analyze, a lot of them you can, and pointed out that their assets, the deposits of oil, gas, and coal were unburnable which is to say if we burned them we'd be Venus, so why are they called assets? And what Bill did in his piece is Burnham, <laughs> which is why it was so terrifying. And I had friends come to me who read it and said, literally, and different people who hadn't spoken to each other said, it's game over. And I was thinking about psychology and how we change as individuals. And oftentimes, that point is when we give up, actually, when we surrender, <laughs> not when we know, when our ego is trying to figure it all out, you know, it's when we actually think that didn't work. In other words, it's game over for the ego. <laughs> so I felt like actually maybe that's a sign that it's game on now. Finally, if people are giving up, maybe it's game on. And so I decided to, to do Drawdown. And then we went to funders, you must know something about this, <laughs> with 2040 and that sugar film. It's just like, yeah, show it to us when you're done and we'll you know, might maybe write you a check. So that's what happened. People said, yeah, well, see what you do. Come back to us. And um, so I took money out of my um, sparsely populated retirement account and put it into Drawdown. And we started and we knew that if a small nonprofit in Sausalito, California was going to come out with, which you see in the book, the most comprehensive plan 
never proposed reverse global warming, we'd have all the credibility of a lentil, you know. So we, um, we actually reached out to institutions all over the world, including Australia, educational institutions for research fellows. And we got just hundreds of applications, Rhodes Scholars, Fulbright Scholars, uh, White House Fellows, and they became our research scientists. And then we added 120 advisors, um, botanists, biologists, architects, engineers, um, politicians, uh, artists. And on top of that, we had 40 outside expert scientific reviewers of our models. They're, they're, they weren't part of the coalition. They were trying to poke holes at our models and show us where they're incorrect. And for two and a half years, we did exactly that. We mapped, measured, and modeled the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. And the, the ethos or the, what happened out of that, and, and to your point, I'm so glad we didn't have money at the beginning, actually. I mean, not at, it didn't feel that way at the time, but, but in hindsight, because when you don't have money, you can't use a check to solve a problem. You, know, you have to solve the problem in some other way. And I think creativity emerges from constraint, not from license. And so in that sense, you know, we depended on uh, each other and on generosity, really. That's what we depended on. So everything you see in that book and on the website is really a result of generosity. And uh, if people write $25 checks, you know, or $25 thing, and I, I write back to every one of them and say, there's no such thing as a small contribution. There really isn't, not to us anyway. You know, and um, that's how it came about. If we launch into the solutions now that are in the book, I think uh, most people would understand that energy is probably pretty obvious. And I know it takes three out of your top ten. But I think when I first read the book and interviewing you, the big surprise was how destructive our agriculture practices are at the moment and how many food-orientated subjects are found in the solutions. So do you want to talk about how destructive it is currently, and then some of the solutions, especially high up numbers, in terms of what, what we can be doing. Yeah, well, we were so surprised. The book was published in April last year. On February 12th, we actually pushed the total button on the model, and uh, of the sectors, electrical generation, transport, cities, land use, food, uh, et materials, uh, food sector was the number one sector. And the reason for that is that food, along with transport, if you do it by sector, is the largest cause of emissions, largest source of emissions, the food system, agriculture, food production, food waste. But the thing about agriculture, food can be the biggest source of sequestration by changing agricultural practices, dietary practices, and the elimination of food waste, but primarily agricultural practices. And it's the only way we can reverse global warming is how we treat uh, the oceans and how we treat the land. And food is the number one way uh, we treat the land. Can you talk then about how, you know, if we do start pulling the carbon back into our soil, just the multiple benefits of that across the vitamin deficiency in our food that affects yeah. us directly, uh, the water retention. I think, I think you mentioned this beautifully in the book that even if, even if global warming didn't exist, so many of these solutions have multiple benefits. Can you maybe talk about that, that, that especially in regards to soil, because it's pertinent for our area up here? Yeah, working backwards, just what you said, I mean, 99 of the 100 solutions we'd want to do if there wasn't a climate scientist alive and we were clueless as to extreme weather causes the matter. We would want to do them. They make so much sense. They have so many benefits uh, right now. And uh, so the idea that somehow we have to do these things to address climate is true, but also not true. In other words, we, sh we should do them for so many other reasons uh, because they're so sensible. Soil, I mean, the, there's no question that, that the big ag has basically mined soils. That's what it does. It extracts. And it extracts by putting in mineral fertilizers and and then, of course, mineral fertilizers weaken both the plant and the soil. And then you need pesticides and herbicides to take care of that. And it's just a, it's a vicious uh, cycle. Um, and I think farmers have hit bottom, actually. A lot of farmers have hit bottom. Certainly, 
here and I, I and certainly in the United States, which is like this is not working at all. They're losing. I mean, banks are coming and saying, uh, "Give us back your equipment," and and pretty soon it's the land. The farmers we've talked to who are really changing uh, are ones who hit the wall. They hit the wall, and uh, uh, the soil is an organism. It's a living organism. We see organisms above the ground, but we don't see it below the ground. And so, below the ground is this extraordinary organism. You know, in a teaspoon is a billion organisms. A billion in a teaspoon of soil. And we are clueless, really. We know more about Mars than we do about a cubic uh, centimeter of soil on this Earth. Really, no kidding. And so what we do know, though, is that uh, the, it's just like our biome, our gut. The, 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 more it, it, the healthier it is, the healthier we are. Same with soil. And you can't have health unless you feed it. Or st and stop killing it, which is what glyphosate and mineral fertilizers and plowing and disking all do. So you're seeing, especially in the red states, you know, right from well, even from Canada right down to Texas, Saskatchewan, right down, you're seeing this amazing movement of very conservative farmers. I probably all voted for Trump to a person, but they're studying regenerative agriculture. They call it no-till. That's what they call it which is never, ever break the soil again, ever. And so what they talk about is complex cover crops and they're bragging, yeah, I put 75 different seeds in the drill this year to see what would happen. <laughs> and there's amazing, you know, and then they use animals to, you know, basically graze it and they do it in a rotational way and then they plant in maybe an annual. These farmers have now in-farm fertility, the soil is so rich and getting richer, um, that they buy nothing except seed, cover crop seeds. They don't buy nothing. Uh, you know, this is yeah. a fantastic thing that's going on, but their soil is so rich, it's sequestering two, three tons, four tons of carbon a year, uh, and year after year after year after year. Uh, and as it does so, it just gets healthier, more productive, more water retention. The plants are mineralized. The um, USDA did a study in 1980-something, the nutritional analysis of food, and then they just stopped it because it was so bad, they went back to the 1950 figures. <laughs> so, yeah, I read one that said that you'd have to eat eight oranges today to get the same amount of vitamin A from an orange in 1950. Yeah. And even some of yeah. the steak from the COVID, 50% less iron than yeah. the same because the cows are eating the grain instead of the yeah. grasses and whatnot. In terms of that, can you talk about just things that we can do in the food area? And especially in regards to like number three, which was food waste, and number four, a plant-based diet. Can you talk about that? Because there's obviously a lot of heated debate around meat. Can you talk about what your findings discovered in that area? Um, food waste is the number three solution. In the United States, we waste between 40 and 45% of all food. And imagine a farmer basically somewhere plant seeds, you know, and he does it with the tractor and diesel and equipment and he plants these seeds and these seeds go somewhere, they're cleaned and, and they're put in bags and they're shipped somewhere else where somebody plants the seeds, right? And then the, the, the seeds are planted the same way, which is the equipment, drills, tractors, you know, they lay down some herbicide, whatever, uh, glyphosate, and then the plant comes up and, and then it's harvested with a combine and then that's taken um, by truck and it's cleaned and then it's ground up or processed and that's sent to a food manufacturer who manufactures it and puts it in plastic or some sort of packaging and then put it in a cardboard box and that's put in a truck that goes to a distributor. That distributor sends it to a store. Somebody walks into the store, buys it, you know, and then puts it in the refrigerator where food goes to die and says, oh, it's too old and throws it away. That's what 40 to 45 percent of our food in the United States is lost on the restaurant household level. That's where it's lost. In other words, only rich people waste food. Poor people never waste food. In developing countries, it's lost on the supply chain. They don't have the cold chain. They don't have the ways to securely get their food from their farm to the market necessarily. So they lose food that way. It's very different. But together, it's a number three solution, and it doesn't count what happens to that food when it's landfilled. 
because when it's landfill that goes into an anaerobic environment, it produces methane, which is 34 times more powerful than CO2. And so it's just astonishing. So the, the one solution that had the biggest impact on me was that one. So that's food waste. And then plant-rich diet isn't vegan, vegetarian, or no meat. It depends on what you want to do. That's your choice. But what we modeled was a, a, a rather dramatic decline in protein intake in uh, wealthy countries from average of, like in Australia, 110 grams per day, as Australians eat actually more, uh, and down, down to 50, 55 grams, which is a healthy level for human beings. Um, and, uh, and then in those countries where there's deficiency of protein, to, to, to raise it to that level, so together. And then to take that protein and move it significantly towards plant-based protein. I mean, broccoli has the same amount of protein as a percentage as steak, you know, but who knows, you know. And um, so, um, there has been this idea that somehow if we don't eat meat, you know, we're going to go down the tube. And, um, but at the same time, many people don't want to be vegan. We're not trying to say what diet you should do, but we're just saying you should look at it really carefully. And if you want to have impact, then move away from animal-based protein as a source of protein. You, you can still eat it if you want. That's not our business as an organization. but. Um, but again, I go back to the 3.3 billion animals that are, you know, in captivity for your benefit, really. Can, can you talk about that in terms of, because I think that gets lost sometimes in, it the, does. in the vegan debates, is how important animals are to actually turning this around and restoring the land again. Yeah. And, and we do need them, but in, in a way we've been used. Yeah. yeah, that's the paradox. When they're in captivity in CAFOs, confined area feeding operations, they don't do much for anybody. Um, and they harm themselves and you and everything else. Um, however, if you take animals off the land, the land degrades. The Nature Conservancy found this out really fast. They bought these huge expanses of the land in the southwest, got rid of all the cattle and everything, and boom, the land just deteriorates so quickly. We have to have animals on the land, uh, whether they're domesticated or wild. Actually, what happens is it, the, the grazing practices that regenerate the land are the imitate the prey-predator relationship that uh, ruminants have always had, which is they herd because they want to protect their young and they herd, they, they clump together because there's predators. And then they don't stay in the same place, they keep moving, 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 and oftentimes, in, really in grasslands and mature grasslands, they never come back for another year, they don't go back to the same place. And so what happens when you, you crop a perennial and right down to, you know, the nub, uh, it stimulates reproduction, actually. And so the, the, the carbon is driven further down into the soil. Um, and there you get, you know, exudates, that is the sugars coming off the roots and those sugars feed the bacteria. Those bacteria break down the minerals that are down beneath uh, the topsoil, those minerals then make the plants and grasses more healthy, make the animals more healthy. I mean, you, again, you get this virtuous circle. And so agriculture that imitates that is highly regenerative and it does depend on animals. If people have a problem with that, then they have to figure out how to regenerate land without animals. You can do it with chickens, pasture-raised chickens, you can do it with other animals. It doesn't have to be a cow or a sheep or goat, but it has to be some form we actually saw a farmer in Mexico who's using wheater geese and he mm. actually rotationally moves yeah. them around his crop and they just eat the grass yeah. and then he moves them along. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's, let's switch to energy and, and can you maybe talk about what your discoveries were in, in relation to solar and wind in particular? And I, I really want to talk about the future and, and especially this is something we're positing that we move away from these sort of top-down structures that we have now and that we've got this really beautiful opportunity to decentralise our energy systems. And we've seen it in Bangladesh, it's starting to happen all around the world. And what you discovered in that, and the influence of, of battery storage and solar and what, how that could revolutionise the landscape. I think it's one of the things that's very interesting about energy, about wind, about solar, um, it's been around a long time, but actually in the book you'll see the first solar panel is 1884 in New York City, by the way. And, and the first coal-fired plant in the United States was two years before that. And during that time, there was dueling editorials as to which would win, solar or coal. And then in the book we said, solar won. <laughs> Took a while. And, um, but the, 
IEA, the International Energy Agency, the World Bank, McKinsey, you name them, they have gotten the projections of what's called the learning rate, which is how fast cost goes down and then how fast it scales, or this particular technology scales. They've got it wrong every year for the last 20 years and they finally admitted it this year. Not once did they get it right. They underestimated every single year. So they are con absolutely consistent. And, and um, so what's happened is that on, and this is to energy in a larger sense, but what's happened is that two scientists at Stanford said, let's make a model that would have predicted the growth rate and the learning rate. And the numbers are staggering. They're just mind-blowing. And all they did was take the past and model it and it's already happened in these technologies and overlaid it over technologies that are right here today. And I mean, some of it is a collapse of certain industries because steel and aluminum and all these things depend on these huge things you see driving around there. And, and uh, the fleet in the United States uh, uh, collapses by 70%. We don't need 70% of our cars, you know? We only drive our cars 3 to 4% of the time. The rest of the time they're sitting around doing nothing, right? So we don't need those, all those vehicles. The vehicles, carbon fiber, no steel, electrically, you know, driven, etc. I mean, and, and I think there's going to be a time in cities within virtually everybody's lifetime here when human drivers will be banned, actually. It won't be human drivers. It's too dangerous. <laughs> We've actually got that in the film, and, and we yeah. spent time with oh, Tony, Tony Siever from Stanford, oh, who did Tony, that important. Yeah, that's and Tony. He, um, but the, the beautiful bonus of that is with 70% less cars in the cities, we actually get to redesign them for humans for the first time in history. Mm -hmm. So he even says on camera, we have to decide as a society what we're going to do with that. Yeah. Is it urban food projects, community spaces, bike paths? Like, suddenly we're going to be able to create these wonderful cities again, Absolutely. which is a bonus of that technology, and we diminish our energy use at the same time. Well, that's what I love about 2040, because it's about 2040, but it talks about what is in place now. And I think, that, I think, I think 2040 is going to have a huge impact on people because it's a reframing. Because basically what we've done is just keep rubbing our nose in the problem. And you don't solve a problem by repeating the problem, the definition of the problem. And that's what we've done in the climate movement. And we've, we just basically thought, well, do, is, is fear, threat, and doom working? No. Okay, let's try it again. Okay, that's not working. Let's try it. Let's, let's amp it up still not working. Well, let's try it more. That's the definition of neuroses, by the way, to try the same thing that never works and keep doing it. And it's, 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 it's numbing people. It's disengaging them everywhere in the world. And I think what 2040 is going to do is engage. And that's what we try to do. Is like the, the, it's not about probability of what's going to go wrong. It's the possibility of what the problem teaches us and tells us it wants. It's all about, got it. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Now, what's possible? And what's possible is magnificent. As you point out in the movie, our cities are going to be, I mean, completely redone. And they're going to be so quiet. I was in London a few months ago. I was like, oh, it's so noisy, you know, the diesel taxis and everything. I was just, I closed my eyes and thought, wow, what would it be like? And there's no noise from cars in London. We actually visited for filming a city in, um, in Bangladesh that's been voted the cleanest city in the world. And their mayor, because of all the asthma problems with the pollution, f um, subsidised all the local tuk-tuks to go electric. So the, this, this mayhem of Bangladesh has this eerie, quiet... I mean, there's still the odd horn, don't get me wrong, but yeah. just that, that diesel engine, it just changes everything. Like, yeah. There's a calming yeah. when you walk amongst it. Like, I think yeah. we, we underestimate that level of anxiety we get in a city or whatnot that's coming from that sort of energy. So I just want you made a beautiful point in the film, and I want you to say it here, because I think it's really important, especially what we're going through in this country, and, and, and other countries will, that in this whole energy discussion, what we've probably forgotten to do is to acknowledge the people that have been in the coal industry for so many years and their, their families have been in the industry. They had no understanding of the implications of what their industry would do. They worked very hard in, in low-paying, dirty jobs. We sort of haven't, we haven't treated it as a human agenda, I don't think. We've just said, right, we've got to shut those coal stations down and, and march on with progress. 
Can you talk about that, especially in your country, and, yes. and, and what's happened in the last election cycle in that regard? Well, that's precisely why Hillary lost the election. I mean, it was stolen besides that, but I mean, she lost the election because what she should have said is go to the coal, you know, uh, areas, you know, and also to the manufacturing areas, you know, in northern Wisconsin, Michigan, western Pennsylvania, where she lost severely, and those states turned the election towards Trump and said, we owe you so much. You and your families and your grandfathers and your people before you have suffered and you powered this country. You brought us to where we are and you paid a huge price. And if I'm elected president, I'm going to do everything possible to make your lives just and to acknowledge you for what you've done and for education, retraining, etc., because our country owes you a huge debt. And instead, they're called deplorables. That was it. That's why we have Donald Trump. And so, unless we have gratitude, come on, you know, and look to people who are doing things, they do it really well. It's really hard to be a coal miner, you know. I mean, listen, especially if it's, it's like, it's going to kill you. And they know it. They know it from black lung disease, at least in our country, and they still do it because they need a job and they want to support their kids, you know. And without honor, we can't do this without honoring each other, you know. And this idea that there's other and that there's some people are wrong and they're bad and all that sort of stuff is really a hallmark of activism that actually we should be ashamed of. Yeah. Let's um, discuss the, the, the biggest surprise you had in solution number six and seven and, and what that meant when they were combined and how that particular subject I don't think is ever discussed in, in right. solutions to global warming. Well, it's so interesting. I was the one who suggested we put in educating girls. It's the number six solution because there's just tens of millions of, of girls pulled out of school every year at puberty or pre-puberty to do what? to really go to work to put their brothers through school, you know, oftentimes, or for early marriage. And this is caused by elders, their family, tradition, the village, culture, religion, doesn't really, it does matter as to the cause, but the result is the same, which is um, that she becomes a woman on somebody else's terms. If she is supported uh, to matriculate to what we would call a high school level in terms of education, her reproductive rate changes. The girl is pulled out of school with early marriage, is subjected to health outcomes that are not cool for an adolescent. Her, she has an average of five children. She doesn't earn as much money because she hasn't had the education. They suffer in a cycle of poverty. Um, in, as opposed to the girl who becomes a woman more if not entirely on her terms by supporting her education then has an average of just over two children, two plus children. And that is the reproductive rate. That's, you know. And so it's a pathway to family planning. Uh, and then the other pathway to family planning is called family planning. <laughs> which is to have clinics available everywhere in the world to support women's uh, reproductive well-being, health choices. And, and you put those two together, because they're really the same thing, um, but there's two different pathways. Uh, and it's the number one solution to reversing global warming is actually the empowerment of girls and women. And again, who knew? And the data isn't our data. All our data comes from international institutions. None of that data is ours. That comes from the UN. The difference between the high and median uh, population projection in 2050, 10.8 versus 9.7 billion, the difference of 1.1 billion is almost entirely due to family planning. Almost all of it is due to family planning. And it's so interesting when I was at UC Santa Cruz and I would said just exactly pretty much what I just said to you. And then a professor raised his hand and said, yeah, 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 but how do we control population? Oh, wow, he wasn't listening to anything. And I said, lose the verb. 
the verb is empower, you know, and, and that's true for a lot of things in this world, but it's certainly true there, which is the idea that somehow we can control it, is the problem. And, uh, and rather than empowering women, uh, and, and that's what we need to do. And if we do, that is the outcome. It's just, it's the outcome. Uh, but it isn't a dictate, you know, it's not forcing, it's not forcing anybody to do something. Yeah, and that, that's interesting because it ties back to the food again. I know one of your solutions is actually continuing to empower female farmers, which is quite prevalent around the world. And if you think of the narrative coming out of big agriculture that, you know, we, we need you, or how are we going to feed all these people in the future? Can you just explain uh, that and what a load of rubbish that is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was 20, I started an organic food company, Erwan. And um, gosh, you know, I got shamed uh, and guilt tripped for years and years by professors and nutritionists and big ag mostly saying, you hippies, you know, you want to eat this way, you think you're so special, but if we all go to organic, the, the world's going to starve. Remember that one? And poor babies in Bangladesh and Burma are going to, you know, die of starvation just because you're so damn selfish about your agricultural methods. You don't want any pesticides, huh? And anyway, it just went on and on and on and so forth. Okay, listen, what I said, in Drawdown, we just do math. We just do numbers. That's all we do, right? Methodologically, we took away the bias. We all have biases. We have them. Um, and um, so there's woman small holders. That is, small holders produce 70% of the food in the world. Big Ag produces about 25. We're not sure where the other 5% comes. Maybe that's Coca-Cola, which is not even a food at all. Uh, who knows? But anyway, the Big Ag produces 25% of the food. Okay, but really, do they? Think about it. What do they produce? Corn, soy for cows and pigs. And then oils, canola, which becomes hydrogenated, you know, and sugar. And so what they produce is stroke, heart disease, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, you know, obesity. They actually produce big pharma. They're related, right? So then we have women who are 40% of smallholders, so 40 times 70 is 28, right? So 28% of the food is produced by women in the world. So women produce more food than big egg. Like, who knew? The whole thing about drawdown, I mean, all of us at the thing were going, huh, who knew, who knew? I mean, we're looking at the data going, huh, really? It's like women produce more food than big ag, uh-huh. And it's the solution because if they get the same training, seeds, tools, you know, that men got, and tenure would be even better, uh, they outproduce men by far. <laughs> and so if we, what we're scaling as a solution is that increase in support of women, smallholders in the world, and it has a big impact on avoided deforestation. In other words, we don't have to cut down trees for more land to produce more food when we can actually support women to produce much more food on the land they already have. So that's why it's the solution, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's very quickly dive into seaweed because of any people that have seen the f bits of the film so far, that's the bit where their jaw yeah. hits the floor in terms of the possibilities there. And I think it's very important that we say this isn't a, a destructive, extractive technology we're talking about. This is actually a regenerative technology for the ocean. Yeah. Um, well, one of the solutions, we have 80 solutions. The solutions we modeled are all scaling. In other words, they exist. There's peer-reviewed science. But we have 20 solutions, which we call coming attractions, and they are scientifically validated, uh, but there just isn't the peer-reviewed science and economic data because they're so nascent, they're on the horizon, they're just coming up. Um, and one of them is marine permaculture uh, by Dr. Brian Van Herzen, who's in 2040. What he invented is these uh, PET frames, plastic for sure, but PET doesn't break down in salt water, I'm not sure why the, the chemistry of that, but but they're just frameworks and they're under uh, the water beneath the uh, level of any freighter or ship that would come by that would mess it up. And then with that, he has these tubes that go down to the thermocline, the cold, nutrient-laden waters that is below. And 
the oceans right now, the, the tropical oceans, 99% of tropical oceans are, are marine deserts. There's no life in them whatsoever. And part of the reason that's happening both in, in the tropical areas, both in North and South, is because 93% of the heat from global warming is actually going into the water, the oceans, and it's producing thermal blankets, which is suppressing the natural circulation patterns. So what he's doing there is with these tubes that are actuated by the rise and fall of water, so is bringing up that cold water into where these frames are, and within weeks you get um, basically, you get phytoplankton, zooplankton, you get algae, you get kelp, you get feeder fish, forage fish, you get, you get the whole trophic, you know, cascade just happens right before your eyes within weeks. It's not like months or years. In weeks, you see the ocean regenerate. In six weeks in Hawaii, where he was 150 miles north of Hawaii, there's nothing there in the ocean. He had whale sharks in six weeks swimming around. Uh, a permaculture frame in the ocean. And so what happens is kelp sequesters more carbon than any other plant above water, below water. And so it deacidifies the ocean. It cools the water. You can reverse coral bleaching. It produces tons of protein. It reestablishes fisheries for fisher folk on every coast in the world, right? And um, what's well, wrong with this picture? You know, it's like, it's just yeah. extraordinary. And just want to say, in terms of coming attraction, we have 20 in the book, but we have about 300 more in our database of this extraordinary ingenuity and genius and brilliance and, of humankind. And so it's not as though the 80 that we model is it, you know, it's so locked and frozen in place. It's the other way around. It's actually, it's not the tip of the iceberg, but it's just this um, uh, front of this renaissance that's occurring in terms of practice, technique, technology. What would you call marine permaculture? Is it technology? Is it technique? Is it practice? I mean, it's hard. We don't have a right word for that, you know, except getting our life in alignment with life. <laughs> You know, as Janine Benyu says, you know, actually, what does life do? It creates the conditions, you know, conducive to life. And that's really who we ought to be. That's who we are. We, sh we create the conditions conducive to life. We'll reverse global warming. There's no question about it. Yeah. We have to talk about the economy, I think, and, and, and the, the sort of look at the, into the belly of the beast in terms of this obsession we have with GDB, that if we do grow, grow at our current rates, the economy is going to have to double by 2041. What do you do in terms of that, in terms of addressing this, this guiding metric that we have, which is totally focused on money? It doesn't include the environment or social infrastructure, all these things. What, what do you think needs to change there? Because I, I feel like we, we can't, the economy can't double. We don't have the resources to allow that to happen. So as great as all these solutions are, we do have to change some of our practices, don't we? Actually, one of the greatest problems we have is, is obvious, so obvious, and unseen, which is there's too much money in the world. Much, much too much money. And it has a life of its own and is doing what money does, which is try to increase. And it doesn't really care how it increases itself. And um, so one of the things that, I mean, what we have now is an economy that is called, I call degenerative development, which is basically we steal the future. Steal it from, you know, the, our children and their children and their children's children's children. We steal it and we sell it in the present and call it GDP and congratulate ourselves and go, ah. And now you do need economic activity. And so I have a kind of an odd way of looking at it. We're the only species without full employment on the planet. Think about that. Um, every other species is busy all day long and pretty happy about it. And we actually have discovered a way to marginalize human beings and make them feel worthless. And so that is our economic system. Okay, and it's based on scarcity in the same time it's based on stealing the future. So really, the pathway that we need to go to 
is regenerative development, which is to heal the future and sell it in the present <laughs> and create a economic activity that way. I mean, think about it. Never has there been so much work ever needed to be done than right now. I mean, so much worthy, extraordinary, restorative, regenerative, kind, generous work that needs to be done. People are suffering. The planet's suffering. And the next book we're doing called, it's called Regeneration. It's like how to create one billion jobs. But, but, but the job, what human beings need is jobs that are purposeful, that give them a sense of respect, that, have, that, that are meaningful to others, that is a living wage, you know, that is restorative and, and, and not harmful. And I mean, that's the pathway to both reversing global warming, but to reversing so many other problems that emerge from the economic uh, paradigm that exists right now. Um, and my argument with the climate establishment, actually, is that we keep talking about 2C, if, you know, 2 degrees Celsius, that, that there's this magical number in 2050 beyond which we cannot exceed, otherwise something really terrible is going to happen. I mean, we don't know exactly what, but it's not going to be good. And so Paris Agreement, 2C, 2C. Now some of the island nations talked about 1.5C, okay. It, this number means nothing to everybody. It's a future existential threat. In America, they don't even know what a C is, by the way. So, um, and, and so we have this thing that's not supposed to happen in the future. And at the same time, the human brain isn't wired to think about future existential threats. Some people do, and it's a lovely thing, but I can tell you that you're here today because your ancestors were very good at dealing with current existential threat. That's why you're here. The people who thought about future existential threats aren't in the gene pool anymore. All right? And so yet, the climate establishment is still using that as a way to motivate. Nothing, 99.99% of people are disengaged around the most credible crisis civilization has ever faced because the way we're languaging it guarantees that they're going to be disengaged because it's abstract, it's conceptual, it's based on fear, based on threat, based on doom. And they're going, I have a mortgage, I have children, I have a mother who's not well, I have this. I mean, they have, you know, they have lives. And so that's what a regenerative development, that's what that kind of economic paradigm does, which is allow us to come together and do it, not because we know how to reverse global warming or that's our mandate, is because we want meaningful, purposeful jobs that give us respect and respect of our community. Can you finish by talking about, and you say it beautifully in the film, what people can do in this moment when they leave right now, and th that beautiful line that we have this opportunity, that this, this is a gift in a lot of ways. Can you explain that? Because I think it's such a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, something that arches a lot of eyebrows when I was a scientist. <laughs> What I say is global warming is a blessing. It's a gift. It's not a curse. Why? It's one system. We use this language, you know, fighting climate change, combating the climate crusade. That's so unfortunate. Um, you know, slashing emissions with our, what, our carbon machetes. I don't know what, but I mean... You know, the carbon war room, you know, negative emissions, all the language around climate change is really negative. And furthermore, it's dualistic, as if the climate was other, the atmosphere is other, and we have to fight it. We know better. We're going to, you know, combat these things, you know. So male, come on. I mean, I don't know one woman who thinks and says that shit. I mean, I'm just sorry. And it's like, uh, well, it's true, you know. I mean, like... How, how can you fight change? You can't fight change. Everything's changing every nanosecond. Every single thing on the universe and so forth that we're going to fight climate change. It's like, I mean, again, the language is so just remote from reality, you know. Um, but what it comes down to is that the, the atmosphere is, the, the, the physics and the chemistry and the biochemistry of the atmosphere and the earth are inseparable, inseparable. It's not like there's something other up there and we're down here. 
And um, so why would we want to fight ourselves? Well, I mean, because that's what we're talking about. But it's a system. It's a system that caused the problem. Okay, we did that. And I say, we were all innocent. All innocent. This wasn't done out of criminal intent or let's ruin the future for our children. People are innocent. But any system that ignores feedback and all climate change, weather changes, what's happening is feedback. And feedback is a blessing. And the feedback is telling us what to do when we don't listen and say, well, try this one. No, you're not listening, try this one. I mean, it's actually very gentle from a geological, atmospheric point of view. It's like, yeah, uh, come on, <laughs> you know. And actually, it's the pathway to the reimagination of what it means to be human being and the transformation of the civilization. That's what global warming is, you know. And you can look at it, like if you look at it, and I really give a big acknowledgement to Byron and Katie on this one, you can look at things that happen in your life as happening to you, you know, and like, bummer, you know, God, I didn't do this, you know, and, or you can understand that everything that happens to you is for you, it's always for you, always for you. And, and, and if it's to you, you're the object, you know, you're up a creek without a paddle, you know, it's bad, things are going wrong. And, and how does it feel to live in that mindset for your life? That's, that's like, is that the mind you want to dwell in and see through? Or if it's happening for you, then you understand, you take 100% responsibility for everything. You don't blame, demonize, you don't sue, you, don't, you just say, oh wow, you know, what extraordinary time to live and be born within and what extraordinary people to work with. It's the best uh, work in the world. Anyway, so that's how I see it. Thanks. Paul Hawken. And Damon Gamow. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dumbo Feather Podcast. And a huge thank you to Paul, Damon, our friends at Impact Investment Group and the Byron Bay Beach Hotel for letting us record this epic conversation. If you would like to know more about Project Drawdown or 2040, we've added links to them in our show notes. This edited conversation was produced by our digital editor, Lizzie Martin. The music you hear is Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for our next conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather Podcast on your favourite pod channel. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather at DumboFeather.com. We deliver worldwide. This podcast is sponsored by Talent Nation, Australia's first B Corp search and recruitment agency. So many of you get in touch to tell us about how important having a meaningful job is to you. Something more than the nine to five grind. Something where you can make a real difference in the world. And Talent Nation gets that. They support candidates and businesses by matching purpose-driven people with purpose-driven roles. Head to talentnation.com.au to find out more. And if you want to buy better by B, head to our website to read all about it.